This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Friday, February 22nd, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Trump today in the Oval Office told a story about his ambassador to China, Terry Branstad. And the time Terry Branstad first met the president of China, Xi Jinping. So here is the nonfiction version. (laughs) We will quickly diverge. In 1984, Branstad, then a young governor of Iowa, goes to China. He did not meet the guy who is the current Chinese head of state, Xi Jinping. But Xi Jinping did the next year head a delegation that goes to Iowa, 1985. And 1985 Branstad meets 1985 Xi Jinping. There is Branstad sitting right there as President Trump tries to tell some version of this story. And I might tell the story that when the ambassador was a young man from Iowa, he was uh, in China. And he was dealing with people from China, both in Iowa and in China. And he met a man who was a young man. And he is now the head of China, President Xi. That is not right. He did not meet Xi when he was in China. But President Trump continued. And he said to his wife, he came home. And this was how many years ago, Mr. Ambassador? Well, 1975 is when he came to Iowa. Right, but you met him in 1978 or so, right? No, not right. In 1978, Branstad wasn't governor. She was a college student studying chemical engineering, but still, President Trump pressed on, undeterred by Branstad actually offering the correction that Trump himself had asked for. He said, because the competence of this man is so enormous that I believe he's going to be the next president of China. And years go by, and he became the next president of China. And they like each other. So when it came time to picking an ambassador from China, I say, I think I have the right guy. He happens to be governor of the great state of Iowa, and you have done a fantastic job. No, no, that did not happen. He never said that in China, and I'm fairly certain he never said that in Iowa. Trump is either greatly mixing things up, or I'm going to go with Occam's razor, just making it up, because he is unable to stick to what actually is a remarkable story, that 34 years ago, the current head of China and the current U.S. ambassador met in a small town in Muscatine, Iowa. And back then, the now president of China was the head of a provincial agricultural delegation. But Branstead then did not turn to his wife and say, oh, I know this guy's going to be president. In fact, NPR quoted Branstead talking about that 1985 meeting saying, quote, who would imagine that a young man that came leading an agriculture delegation to Iowa in 85 would someday be the leader of China? But Trump not only ascribes that inkling that Branstead said he didn't have to Branstead, he also implicates Mrs. Branstead. But I thought that story was incredible. So many years ago, 
he said that he knows who the next president of China is going to be. I thought, I just think it's a great story. And, uh, and his wife confirms it fully, so that's good. I shall now describe Terry Branstad's expression during Trump's assertion. Tight-lipped grimace, right hand clutches his own shin, left hand balled in a fist, nervously stroking his fingers with his thumb. Trump then went on to claim that we were making great progress in the Chinese negotiation. And how could you ever doubt him? On the show today, I spiel about millionaires. Just millionaires? No, also billionaires. But first, he is just an excellent storyteller, which is all brought to bear in a new podcast called Mobituaries, Stories about guys named Mo who have died. Actually, that's not quite it. It's stories about people who have died, as told by the estimable Mo Rocca. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mo Rocca does so many things. You know him from CBS Sunday Morning and uh, a fine, fine, if not on the Mount Rushmore of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me panelists. Now he is out with a new podcast called Mobituaries. If your name is Mo, as in Mo Rocca, there's so many places you could take that and ways you could go with that, right? Mo Country for Old Man and Mo Rocca on Soccer. But we should be glad he went with the obituary because it's a fine art form and his contribution to it elevates it even more. Thanks for coming in, Mo. I don't even get the Teddy Roosevelt slot on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> and I believe I love t- Teddy Roosevelt, but mm-hmm. he's the one of these things are not like the other on Mount Rushmore. But I don't even get that slot. No, I, I would say if not on, I guess you're right. Grammatically, if not on Mount Rushmore means you're not on Mount Rushmore. But I think an argument, arguably on Mount Rushmore is what I should have said. <laughs> the Mount Rushmore of, can- of uh, wait, wait, don't tell me. Panelists. At first, I was wondering, okay, I understand this is a podcast about obituaries, but is it just that? And I, I, I came up with a theory based on the first two. Vaughn Meter uh, was number one and sitcom Deaths and Disappearances, so the Darrens from Bewitched. And I said to myself, oh, I get it. It's a look back. It's essentially an obituary of a person or people whose lives were very much affected by death itself. So it's sort of a story of the death of a person inflected by death, and then I had to throw that out the window when I heard the next two. I don't know if that theory is correct. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that, but that makes it sound far loftier than it really is. These are just profiles of people and things that I'm interested in, and just like kind of an obituary is really about the life of somebody rather than the death of somebody, there is just a range of subjects that I 
wanted to profile, to look into. And many of these are well-known people who got obituaries. Maybe they didn't get the obituary they deserved, in my opinion, um, or things like sitcom characters or species of archaic humans like Neanderthals that never had obits. Although I love the idea that 40,000 years ago on a Flintstone-like tablet, <laughs> there was an obit. The A-head that day was the, the end of the Neanderthals. We have a, a mutual friend, Ian Chillag, who is so talented, so smart. And he said to me when I was seeking his advice at the beginning of this, he said, any good podcast idea is an excuse to talk about anything. That's right. And I thought that that was almost profound as a creative idea that trying to do something super specific is obviously limiting and I think it's boring really quickly. Most every aspect of a newspaper has been replicated in some online form. So you have the investigative story. Well, BuzzFeed is doing that. And you have the, uh, the the letter to the editor. I mean, that's all online is giving you. So take each sports. I mean, we have ESPN. Take each section of the newspaper. There's some digital analog online form. Not so with the obituary. All the great obituaries are still the province of newspapers. My theory on this is just the age of the audience, people with limited exception when someone, for me and maybe you, when John Belushi died, that was someone I wanted to read an obituary of. But usually the people who die are more important to older people, people who either as kids grew up watching them or are the same age as the people who died. And once we get to a place where uh, Gen X characters or Gen X figures will warrant obituaries and millennial figures will warrant obituaries. Somehow the digital world is going to come up with this, but it hasn't yet. I mean, I'd like to think that part of it is that when you read something, it's sort of a quiet, obviously individual act. It's sort of like an an observance, mm-hmm. right? So you're reading about the death of somebody and Maybe our pulse rate slows a little bit, um, but but it does. It it somehow seems right that it should be that that it should still be the province of print to to read the distillation of someone's life and yeah. like quietly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I have always said I would watch a eulogy channel. I, a good yeah. eulogy. I mean, if there was a YouTube channel on that, or even a podcast on that, that curated eulogy. great eulogies. Yeah, as said at a funeral. And it doesn't have to be of famous people. In fact, some of the best ones are just of good or interesting people. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, um, yeah, like an entire channel on just a beloved, on beloved teachers. Yeah. Right? Eulogies of beloved teachers. I I love Mr. Holland's opus so much. (laughs) Hook, line, and sinker. So, in terms of uh, selecting your subjects, uh, your very personal. You talk about how much uh, so many of them meant to you. And even if Vaughn Meter didn't mean a lot to you, there was an intersection with your life and your dad and Kennedy and so forth. Did you choose them based on what they meant to you, if they would make good stories? Or the third one, since the CBS News joint, where there was good tape of? All those things came into it. But ultimately, I'm just going to trust my gut. And if something's not interesting to me, you know, I mean, it seems so trite, but that if you're really interested in something, people will also be interested. The audience will also be interested because you're interested in it. So that said, you know, 
I'm, I, I try to say open to new ideas, Von Meter, who became wildly famous imitating President John F. Kennedy and who essentially disappeared after the, Kennedy, after the president was murdered. That was not my idea. Producer of ours, Megan Marcus, who, like me, is kind of an old soul. And she said, well, there's this guy, um, you know, Von Meter. And I said, oh, yeah, I think I remember who it was. And, she's, and she went into the archives of CBS News and she found a 90-minute interview and it was – it is pure gold and even better, literally seconds of it, like probably 45 seconds of it had aired on an old CBS cable channel. No one saw it. I mean, it was just gold that was sitting there hearing this man shortly before his death talk about what it was like to be alive for decades but sort of treated as if he he was dead yeah. because he reminded people of this beloved leader even if you hadn't voted for Kennedy, it was horrific that this young man was cut down like that. And Von Meter lived significantly for another 40 years, I'm thinking like 40 years in the desert, just sort of essentially being shunned by people because he was the guy that reminded them of this horrible day. Right, right. In an instant with an assassin's bullet, he turns from a celebration to a ghoul. Totally, no totally. A ghoul is a perfect word. And, and that tape is so amazing because – when asked by the producer who you interview, and there's a story about him being disappointed that the producer showed up and not the host, the producer says, well, can you do the impression? And the impression that he does, you expect him to either pull from a famous quote or because he has a comic bent to say something that Kennedy would have said when alive. But instead, he speaks as Kennedy but as a Kennedy who also knows that he was assassinated. That's what he goes to. Yeah. 30-something years ago in Dallas, Texas, another shot was fired that was heard around the world. The uh, first bullet fired from the uh, Concord Bridge signaled the birth of the American spirit. The uh, second bullet fired from the uh, Texas Book Depository attempted to win that spirit. And we have seen in the last 30-something years how nearly successful that second bullet was. Hmm. But in the final analysis, there is no bullet, there is no bomb, there is no power on the face of this earth that can destroy the American spirit. Maybe it'd say something like that, I don't know. It's unbelievable. Yeah, thank you. No, it was, it was a great it was a great find and you know, it was very, very powerful. And it was when we were finishing up scripting of it, I was trying to figure out how to end it. And then <laughs> I, I hadn't realized this before. I hadn't focused on it that Von Meter died the day before my own father had died. Not just the – like the actual day. And uh, – and you know, first of all, a lot of these topics. Basically, I could, I could, I could retitle this things that my father and I both loved. Basically, so, <laughs> so a lot of these topics. You know, so anyway, I don't want you to leave without knowing that I, th I think this series is fantastic. I think the execution is great. You show your interviewing chops time and time again with Von Meter's widow. You ask great questions. With President Clinton, you ask great questions, which brings me to my question. Did you start off as a fake question answer uh, asker on The Daily Show? Was that your first foray into this format, even if it was a, a Bizarro World version of this for format? 
I think one of the things – there are two things about – that I think about now in um, in regards to sort of interviewing people on The Daily Show. One thing is that it kind of inoculated me from being a smarmy interviewer. The other thing though – and John Stewart always said this and at first I, I didn't know what he was – what he really meant. But he would always go, it's just telling stories. It's just telling stories. And it is. I mean it's sort of whether – I mean as you know, it, it is – an interview is right. I mean, is in the service of telling a story. I, I don't know. When I think of somebody like a Morley Safer, who I think was really, really great, I always think he's kind of best supporting actor. This is a scene; they're not co-stars, but he's he's going to be best supporting actor in this interview with, say, Alec Baldwin or mm-hmm. the Shah of Iran with Mike Wallace. <laughs> it's like it's because it is a scene, yeah. right? It is sort of. I mean, a lot of journalists don't like to hear that comparison, I think. They think, no, it's not. That makes it sound like it's it's entertainment. Well, it damn well better be entertaining. Yeah, yeah. The, reason, the reason 60 Minutes on the Air is it gets good ratings. It's, yes, it's People entertaining. People want to watch it. But when you were in The Daily Show, doing The Daily Show, asking those questions, did it ever frustrate you that it was always, the end was always some joke or some yes. bit of mockery? Absolutely. Absolutely. What's well, funny, I went back and I recently did a piece on Andrew Johnson, our first impeached president. Yeah. The president, the, the 17th worst. president. I think the worst president. Yeah, he, I mean, yeah. I mean the worst person. I know we got a guy giving mm-hmm. him a run for his money, but Andrew Johnson's horrible. He was really bad. And and almost 20 years to the month before I had done, it was the first piece I did for The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. It's how I got on the show because I went to them and I said, I'm, it was during the Clinton impeachment crisis, and I said I'll do a piece on the, how the hometown memorializes an impeached president. And the piece got me on the show, but I hadn't seen the piece for 20 years until I went back and did a piece for CBS Sunday Morning. Um, and not to be unkind to my younger self, but I kind of was an asshole in the piece, and it actually wasn't that funny. I think it the audience liked it, I think, because I was being kind of – Dick, I guess, during yeah. it. Um, and I lo- look, I loved a lot of the pieces, and I certainly loved who I worked but, with but on the wait, Daily but Show. But to be but, fair to yourself, it was such yeah. a novel format, and mm-hmm. just that alone, yeah. and you executing within that format. Uh, first, first of all, everyone who was doing that was finding their stride and figuring totally. out how to do it. But it was just so exciting to watch these people like you and your fellow correspondents putting on a straight face, somewhat fooling someone. It's like the idea of the mockumentary, which there's, it was so exciting in the days of Spinal Tap just to see someone inventing this format. Now you have to, I mean, Spinal Tap was a great movie, not to degrade Spinal Tap, but some of those jokes there maybe aren't as great as jokes of mockumentaries that came later. Well, yeah, and and, and part of the thrill for me also, and I think for the audience was, was, oh, this is, I, um, you know that that he's playing a reporter, and, yes. and the the docent there at the park ranger isn't quite clear what's happening. And don't get me wrong, I love that I did it. Believe me, it gave me a, a career in television. But then when I was able to do it twenty years later, you know, I'm interested in obscure presidents. I just am, and so and and, and in the presidency itself, and uh, and um, so it was nice. I guess I should count my blessings and say I got to do both halves of it. But yeah. it was it was nice to be able to go and do it to go back and do a piece on the same subject and actually really like ask real questions to get real information and hopefully at moments be funny. What are some of the next episodes of Mobituaries? The story of Chang and Ang 
the the so the original the, not I was going to say the original conjoined twins the original <laughs> that were not before that the original Siamese twins that's because they came from Siam even though they were mostly ethnically Chinese what's interesting to me obviously how they became some of America's first celebrities and by the way they were some of the first Asians in America period yeah. like thirty years before the, like they die they die like I think twenty thirty years before the Chinese Exclusion Act and all that but but the um that's a story I think about domesticity about the fact that they these twins settle down in North Carolina get married and raise families which is kind of the most radical thing they do I mean it's, it's so so yeah that's um so that one's coming Copious up families many really <laughs> 21 kids between Chang and Ang between the two of them and I went to North Carolina to the 29th annual bunker family reunion so they have many many descendants and it's kind of wild and they gather in North Carolina every year in Mount Airy, which is also where Andy Griffith was from, they're, they're the three fam- favorite sons, Andy, Chang, and Ang of Mount Airy. And then we have um, – I don't want to give away the very last one. It's a, sp- it's a sports story and let's just say it involves Auburn and Alabama uh-huh. and, and, the, and, and the death of something, okay. which people are already figuring out what yeah. it is. But it's not a person. No. Perhaps a, an eagle. <laughs> let's just say. Less <laughs> – um, moves less than that, but but alive. Okay. W- once was alive. <laughs> Mo Rocca's new series is Mobituaries with Mo Rocca. So he's in the title and the credit line. That's great. <laughs> Mo, thanks so much for coming by. Thank you, Mike. It's really a lot of fun. And now, millionaires! Millionaires! And billionaires! And billionaires! Millionaires and billionaires! Millionaires and billionaires! But actually, just billionaires! Just the billionaire class! It's fun to say, but should they stay? I've researched it, and no matter what we decide, we can still say billionaires! Billionaires! We can say it, even if we do away with them! Similar example, Dodo Bird or General Interest Magazine. The debillionarization process was touched off, as most things are these days, by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Her policy advisor's Twitter handle is every billionaire is a policy failure. I suppose if he keeps that Twitter handle until Halloween, it'll be every billionaire is a policy failure. Hashtag zombie banks. AOC said this in a conversation with the writer Tanahasi Coates. Do we live in a moral world that allows for billionaires? Is that a moral outcome in and no, of itself? Mm-hmm. It's not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. And it's not. And I think it's it's important to say that I I, I don't think it's not it that necessarily means that all billionaires are immoral. It is right. not to say that. Someone like Bill Gates, for example, or Warren Buffett mm-hmm. are, are immoral people. I do not believe that. But I believe but he kicks his dog. Right. Or something like yeah. That. I, I, I don't. I don't. I'm not yeah. saying that. But I do think a system that allows billionaires to exist mm. when there are parts of Alabama where where people are still getting ringworm because mm-hmm. they don't have access to public health mm-hmm. is wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, not only does Bill Gates not kick his dog, he has, for the record, given away $35 billion. Yes, I know, he still has like $97 billion left. But, you know, Bill Gates in absolute dollars is the most generous man in the world. And that might be a bit nicer and even more accurate than just describing him as Bill Gates' non-dog kicker. 
also in the spirit of accuracy, hookworm is the accurate affliction that AOC was referring to, not ringworm. She acknowledged that. They did think that hookworm was eradicated in the United States, but a recent survey and study done by Tulane showed that it has made a return in some rural areas in the South. Well, do you know why it was eradicated in the first place? This is interesting. Because of the efforts of the RSC. What's the RSC? It's the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission for the Eradication of Hookworm Disease. Look, Rockefeller was allowed to become the richest person in modern history, and that is a poor policy choice, but he still did some good things with his wealth. And what of Gates's enormous wealth? He himself says he shouldn't have all of it. Well, he shouldn't have it to the extent he has it. He and Warren Buffett advocate for higher taxes on people like them and a bigger estate tax. That's big, and I'll come back to it. Gates and Buffett started the Giving Pledge, whereby billionaires, billionaires pledge at least half their fortunes to charity and 189 billionaires and even some hundred millionaires have done it. Of course, in the world, there are over 2,500 billionaires who haven't done it. So fuck those billionaires. And yes, this is the point, isn't it? Fuck those billionaires. We hate the rich because they are rich, especially in this moment, but also in every moment before now. But as with so many questions of income inequality, we must ask, does the richness of one person mean the poverty of another? In some countries, certainly. For much of our country's history, yes. When you're dealing with extractive industries, I'd say so. But then when it comes to technology, maybe less so. Balzac said, behind every great fortune, there lies a great crime. But Windows 95, is that a great crime or just a minor one? Elon Musk, the person seems more offensive than Tesla the car or the boring company the idea. If we're asking if billionaires are to blame, I think we need to look at the stats. I know what the feeling is. Let's look at some empirical data. The Forbes richest 400, which by the way, does not even include all the billionaires. You need over $2 billion to make the list. So there are some couple hundred billionaires who aren't even billionaire enough to be in the top 400. But the cumulative wealth of those 400 individuals is $2.9 trillion. Add in the sad, pathetic billionaires who didn't even make it, it comes out to be about $3.3 trillion, which is a nice number in terms of division in the United States. So how it works out is if you took all the money from the billionaires, which is easier than it sounds, I'm sure they'd have some very good private armies, but somehow... If you redistributed their wealth to everyone, every man, woman, and child in the United States would get $10,000. Of course, some of those men, women, and children would be people like Manny Machado, who just signed this huge contract, so screw that guy too. So we have to acknowledge that all that wealth for the rest of us would do a lot of money. I mean, hookworms would be sweating it out that day. Of course, if you are in the wealth confiscation game, every innovative entrepreneur or creator of wealth would flee the country, so it's not really a practical solution. Practicality, though, isn't the name of the game here. It's a thought experiment. You know, this is what AOC does. She raises the issue. She doesn't really need to think we need to literally eradicate billionaires or, like the Green New Deal says, end air travel in 10 years or, you know, push Amazon out of Queens so they don't, they don't bring any jobs. Oh, wait, that one happened? Yeah, so she totally meant it. But rather than have all the billionaires donate all their money to the general fund, let's uh, 
construct a hypothetical situation where we're not actually taking their money. They just wake up one day and say, Bill Gates getting all the attention. First, the guy is called a non-dog kicker. As far as I know, I haven't kicked a dog since I made my eighth billion. We're just going to give all our money, all our money to the general fund. You know, that's a little inefficient, right? Some of that money will be used to fund the wars we're currently in. Some of it will get thrown away on stupid ethanol subsidies. You know, all the stuff that we are already wasting our money on. I am for government. I am for the use of government services to help improve the lives of people and ameliorate the plight of the worst among us. But my God, Bill Gates does that by himself and with his foundation even better than the government does. I mean, speaking of worms that hurt... The Gates Foundation literally eradicated Guinea worm disease, which affected millions of Africans, not just thousands of Alabamans. The eradication of billionaires themselves, though, is harder. And this is a problem with our de-billionarization efforts. Think of it this way. A 2% interest, which is what you get just by doing nothing, putting your, putting your money in a savings account, a 900 millionaire becomes a billionaire in a little over five years. An 800 millionaire becomes a billionaire in 12 years. There is literally no way to stop these people from becoming billionaires. What are you going to do? Tell an 800 millionaire they simply can't put their money in a bank? A billion is an arbitrary number. I mean, today's billionaire has the same spending power as someone who is worth only $490 million in 1989, which is the year AOC was born. In 30 years, a billionaire won't be worth half a billion in today's money. And think about this. We're talking about the number of billionaires and all the billionaires in the world being a problem. What if we eradicated billionaires? Well, think of a billionaire, a guy who's worth $5 billion, and that guy dies, and that guy had six heirs. They split their money up, and guess what? There's one less billionaire in the world. None of them are billionaires. Let's now take the same guy and say instead of six heirs, he had four heirs. So guess what? Same guy dies. Now there are quadruple the number of billionaires there were before. Nothing changed in terms of the economy. There's no less money in the hands of very, very rich people. But somehow we, under one scenario, have solved our billionaire problem. And on the other scenario, have made it four times worse. If stats don't do it for you, let's take Oprah. Literally, let's take her money. I read that she's worth $3.1 billion. So let's take $2.2 billion of Oprah's money. What does that do for you? Okay, you say, Oprah, she's one of the nice billionaires. Maybe Bill Gates, maybe Warren Buffett, maybe those guys are too. Maybe the problem isn't billionaires. Maybe the specific problem is asshole billionaires. Can we target just the asshole billionaires? Some problems with that. We can't specifically do it. For instance, one man's asshole billionaire is a Koch brother. Another man's asshole billionaire is George Soros. By the way, after Gates and Buffett, Soros is the third most philanthropic billionaire, which is a fact that a, I don't know, third of our country finds terrifying. Money is just an asshole intensifier. Like alcohol brings out and amplifies the personality you already have. Money is an asshole force multiplier. There's a middle-class guy. This guy's got a lot of opinions about how the world should work. He watches Fox. He gets mad. Who cares about this guy? Give the same guy a billion dollars. Yes, Mr. President. Sure, yeah, I met Xi Jinping in 1978. Whatever you say. But billionaires do help the economy. They do create jobs. They do create wealth. They do create value. 
The Scandinavian countries that Bernie Sanders admires, and I do too, have plenty of billionaires. It is true they have more billionaires per capita than the U.S. does, though, when you're talking about a place like Norway, you lose two billionaires in a fjord accident. It affects the per capita rates. But what we're saying is that fair, good, equitable, much less unequal economies and countries actually have more billionaires. Billionaires are not a bug in the system. They're actually a feature of a system that's working pretty well. I say the answer is simple, which is to tax the wealth of the living, which is hard, a wealth tax, Elizabeth Warren's pursuing it, but greatly tax the wealth of the dead which is much easier. And we did it better for a long time. It is a policy championed by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, and it's not hurting anyone who's alive's feelings. Once again, we have this unfeasible idea. We're living in the era of celebrating the unfeasible idea. The unfeasible idea is let's not have billionaires. Wait a minute, how does that work? It doesn't matter, it's a thought experiment. We got an Overton window, we gotta move it to the left. But there's a plausible alternative, which is let's have a significant estate tax, and that's not getting talked about enough. In addition to the straightforward policy, we can encourage the billionaires themselves to be a lot more generous during their lifetime, perhaps by regarding them in a better light than simply non-dog kicker. In general, let us not obsess over the meaningless nonsense that we regard as thought starters, and let's actually start thinking about feasible policies, not based on resentment of the rich or moral castigation. The sloganeering, well... I kind of like that. Millionaire and billionaire. Millionaires and billionaires. Billionaires and millionaires. Billionaires. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader, who each once ate a bowl of goulash using a Floby. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, has been known to consume a plate of couscous with the business end of a ball-peen hammer. The Gist Excuse me while I tuck into this cocoa van. And do you have another drywall trowel? Because this one has some polenta on it, and I don't like to mix my proteins and starches. Umpru depru duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>